what does it mean to be clean? And are we really unclean? Is there a need to be uh, sanctified, to change, purified? I, I think it's interesting. We live in a time where there's much of society would think that they're relatively clean. I'm really not that bad. I'm certainly not as bad as those people. And so we kind of judge things on a uh, curve. So there's one whole part of the population that just feels like, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm really, I'm really not that bad. I think I'm pretty much a good person. And God, obviously, if there is a God, would love me and let me into heaven because I'm really not that bad. But then there's the other side of society that just feels like they're never good enough. They're never clean enough. They're never, there's nothing. In, so you, you probably fall into one of those camps. Either you think, you know, well, yeah, I mean, God, I, he's a loving God and I'm a lovable person and we would make a great couple, a loving God and a lovable person. And so obviously he would love me kind of like a little chihuahua or something. I mean, he would think I'm great and cute and fuzzy and want me to be in his life. And, you know, yes, I make messes at times, but, you know, I'm still his little pet and he thinks I'm great. Or we have a feeling of, man, I'm just I'm just messed up. I would say society by and large has, has lost the moral compass. There's an article written in The Atlantic, which is not exactly a theological journal, and uh, written by a high school English teacher, and it's called Students' Broken Moral Compasses. Students' Broken Moral Compasses. And in The Atlantic, what the uh, teacher says is they, they explain to their class, they ask the question, give them a scenario. If your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your really close friend committed a felony in which another person was bodily harmed, physically they they were hurt because of the thing that they did that was illegal and wrong, would you go to the authorities and turn them in? What would you do? Would you turn them in? Would you snitch? Would you... You know, would you push them to make sure that they said what they did that was wrong and, and turn themselves in? Would you? And, and the consistent answer was no. And as they dialogued on this and they talked about it, and they kind of processed through, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? The, the consensus was loyalty to your friend is more important than doing what is right. What is right, the moral prerogative, the moral primary goal is to do what is best for the people closest to you and for yourself well that's a problem we have a moral compass that's broken in society and i want you to understand that this is why god is revealing himself to his people this is the context of the third book of the bible the old testament you've got genesis then you've got exodus the story of god taking his people that started from just a big tribe of people to spending 400 years in Egypt and growing to a massive nation so big that the Egyptians enslave them and make them build things for them and oppress them. And then God responds to their prayers and the fulfillment of prophecy also um, to set them free from captivity in Egypt. And he sends them out. And after a year of being in the wilderness at Mount Sinai and God revealing himself by encompassing that mountain in fire, giving them the Ten Commandments and the basic foundation for the law, He then gives them some instructions to build a tabernacle and eventually a temple. Tabernacle is a fancy word for tent. So he's going to build a tent that they're going to come and they're going to worship God in this tent. It's going to be a portable worship uh, temple. And then eventually they're going to build a temple. And he gives them a Leviticus was written in 30 days after they built the thing he told them to build with incredible specific um, directions on what it's supposed to look like and the dimensions and how you build it and what are the, all the details. So they build this magnificent tent tabernacle. And after it's built, uh, God gives them, he speaks to Moses from the, from the front door and tells him to come and he, he tells him how to worship him. He gives him a series of offerings that they're going to have to do on a regular basis. Well, that's what we're going to cover in the next several weeks. Tells him how to consecrate the priest that will minister on behalf of the nation and then he goes through some moral laws and then a series of, of feasts that they will celebrate annually to help them remember different things of what God's done or foreshadowing future events that are going to take place. And that's the book of Leviticus given in 30 days after the temple tabernacles built, a year after the Exodus. And then after those 30 days, uh, the second month, he gives them, they, they begin the events that we have recorded in the book of Numbers. That's the context. Now, I want you to have a little bit of a a visual map or understanding of what this would look like. So this is a view of the temple, Solomon's temple, not the tent. This is eventually after Solomon. So we're we're right now, historically, Leviticus, we're in 1440. 
5 B.C. This was built around 950 B.C. So this is much later. But I want you to see uh, what Solomon's temple would have looked like. And so in the temple you have the, the uh, laver, which is this big giant thing, uh, big bowl of, of water that is something that the, the priests use for purification and for washing and for cleansing themselves in the process of preparing for doing offerings or after they've done some offerings or whatever. They go there. There's also some portable ones that they eventually have built. And then you have the altar, which is a big giant um, built on a big stones, huge stones. But temporarily for the tabernacle, which I'll show you some images on, they built a brazen altar that was portable, that had poles that could be lifted up, had horns on the four corners that was basically about this size, just actually a slightly bigger than this, but almost to spec about this size. And so then when you go inside the temple through these pillars, you go inside the temple, you have a table of showbread uh, where they have 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of um, the nation of Israel. And then there was also a a lampstand that had seven uh, lights on it, oil lamps that that burned. And they that was the illumination. That was the light that they had inside the holy place was these different uh, was was that one lampstand. And then you see number five there, if I can keep from shaking it. There you go. Um, there's a priest, little tiny priest, next to the altar of incense. So you have a little version of this big one out here is on the inside. And that altar of incense sat and fire from the outside that had been cleansed by the blood, purified by the blood, fire of God. God lit the fire on the outside. Was Some of those coals were carried inside, placed on the altar of incense. And then incense was placed on it, a very specific... Um, recipe for what oils and perfumes and spices would be placed in that and that those that would smoke and fill the um, holy place and that was symbolic of the prayers of the saints being lifted up to god as the people were praying to god there was always smoke coming inside the holy place lifting up to god and that was the holy place and then the holy of holies is behind this curtain and in the holy of holies is one item the ark of the covenant the Ark of the Covenant. An Ark is a box that holds something. There's Noah's Ark, which is a big giant box that holds a bunch of animals and preserves them from the wrath of God. It was a boat. This is not a boat. This is a smaller box. The box was laid in there, had two angels carved on the top. The whole thing was covered with gold, and they were looking down. And if you could see, they're looking at the lid of the Ark of the Covenant as if they could see through it. And inside the box was the Ten Commandments. And eventually there were other things that were placed in there. Manna, um, a jar of manna. There was uh, Aaron's rod that budded. Um, several things that commemorated specific times in uh, their history where God did certain things. So there's a few things that were in the ark. But the most important thing was the law. And when God looked from heaven down into the ark of the covenant, he saw his law. And when he looks at his law and he looks at his people, he sees a problem. They are unclean and they're not fit to worship him. And so... The tabernacle was placed in the middle of the camp, camps on each side surrounding, the 12 camps surrounding the, ta- the tabernacle where God set up his presence in the, ma- in the midst of his people, and they came to worship God. And going into the tabernacle, there was one entrance. So this is the tent. There was one entrance, one way in, one way out. And when you walk in, the first thing you run into is the brazen altar. The first thing you run into is this big box that's on fire with fire that was set from God that that came out of the holy place and consumed the first offering that was placed on there. So God lit the fire, it's holy fire, and it burns continually day after day after day. They were to feed the fire and the fire was never to go out. And it was a reoccurring picture for them of the wrath of God that burns towards sin. That's the brazen altar. Again, another look at what the tent would have looked like, and it would have had several different layers. These are layers. This isn't like um, lines here, but these are layers of canvas that was over the uh, tabernacle. And there's symbolism between each of those. Most importantly is the tent, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, only one time a year was the high priest allowed to go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the lamb that had been shed on part, actually a goat that was killed on behalf of the nation. And this was on Yom Kippur 
or the Day of Atonement once a year. We'll get into that later in the middle of the book of Leviticus. But that was the only time he's allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And on those curtains are two giant seraphim, two angels that are, that are uh, woven into the fabric holding fiery swords to remind them of humanity being kicked out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 when man first sins and God expels them in His loving, merciful grace. He cuts them off from the tree of life so as to keep them from eating the tree of life and being in a perpetual state of separation from God, he lovingly cast them out of his presence where they would be incinerated by the holiness of God, cuts them off with this fiery sword, putting his seraphim there, and they are expelled from the garden. And now he's made a way that they can come back into fellowship with him. Incredible. So what does this have to do with us? Well, Isaiah chapter 6 Says the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, in the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And calling out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken from your sin from your sin is forgiven. Taken away and your sin is forgiven. This is the commissioning of Isaiah the prophet. Where is Isaiah in that moment? Isaiah is praying and God takes him up and he has this vision or God opens up, better yet, probably the heavens and gives him a view of heaven. He, has a, he allows him to see into heaven and see what's happening in heaven. In fact, right now, as we're sitting here listening to the word of God taught, this is what's going on in heaven right now, I believe. Okay, so God is on his throne. And, and, and to be more specific, I believe Jesus on the throne is who he sees. Unveiled, he sees Jesus, God, on the throne, and he is in the throne. In, in what building is he in? He's in the temple. He's not in that temple, tabernacle. He's not in Solomon's temple. He's in a heavenly temple. And in that heavenly temple, there's an altar. And the angel flies to the altar, I believe, a probably a replica of, or actually the original, original, not a replica, of the altar of incense, he goes and he gets coals off the altar and he comes and he touches the sinful place in Isaiah's life, which he said was his lips. A prophet speaks the word of God. His job is to proclaim. And the one place that he proclaims, he realizes the way he he proclaims the word of God, he realizes is actually unclean. And God cauterizes the wound. He purifies the wound with the hot coal dispatched from with the angel. So here's the question. Which came first? The tabernacle, the temple, or the heavenly temple? And the answer is the heavenly temple. If we were to go to the book of Revelation, you read through Revelation, many times there's images in Revelation of things that we find in the tabernacle, and you wonder where they are. Jesus walking among the lampstands, the throne of God in the temple, and a river of life flowing from the throne in the temple. What are these things that he's describing in heaven right now is a temple and God is on his throne and he is enthroned in the praises of the saints that have gone before us and the angels that are praying on behalf and and worshiping and ministering in his presence. And what God did graciously, kindly, benevolently is he gave us humanity, sinful, unclean people, a way to have an idea of what life is like in eternity what is heaven like god has descended and made his presence known for us by giving us a tangible physical representation a physical place to learn about eternal realities that he has a wrath that burns towards sin and he gives us a box so that we can understand that his 
that our sins are serious and they deserve consequences. And so he gives us ways that with childlike faith we can understand that we, we have a problem. We are unclean. And the, and the temple's not like any other earthly temple. This is unique and set apart. And the things that we're seeing physically that they're building and they're making to come worship God are simple shadows of which there is a reality in heaven. And these are just a simple replica of them. And so that's the backdrop for these amazing offerings. Leviticus chapter 1. So here it is. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the animals from the herd or the flock. It is, uh, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay uh, his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. The word atonement is covering. He shall slay the young bull. So the worshiper, the person, has to slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons and the priests shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around an altar that is in the doorway of the tent of meeting. It's the brazen altar. And he shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Again, the worshiper is going to skin it, cut it into pieces. The son, sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar, arrange the wood of the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the soot over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, that's the guts, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering. An offering by fire of this, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. That's mentioned several times. Soothing aroma. Evidently, God uh, smells the things that are offered on earth, and He smells what's going on here. But if His offerings, if His offering is from the flock of the sheep or the goats for a burnt offering, He shall offer it. A male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. He shall then cut it into pieces with its head and its suit, suit, uh, soot. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, with the legs, he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it. The, and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves of or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. Each of these sacrifices, pause for a second, the blood would be taken and the blood was poured out on the side of the altar. So all around the altar, they're, they're, they're dumping out blood from these sacrifices before the, the meat is consumed or the entrails are consumed on the altar by fire. And so, beside the altar, verse 17. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. The priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar on the wood which is on the fire it is a burnt offering an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the lord and then chapter 2 begins the law of the grain offering there's also some insights in chapter 6 uh regarding verse 8 regarding the burnt offerings then the lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his son saying, this is the law for the burnt offerings. The burnt offerings itself shall remain on the hearth, on the altar all night until morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe and he shall put an undergarment next to his flesh and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off the garments and put on the other garments and carry the 
ashes outside the camp to a clean place. In other words, you don't take the, uh, the ashes of the burnt offering and you go to the local dump and throw it all in the pile where everybody puts their trash. It doesn't go there. You don't put it in the place where everybody carries their refuse out of the camp and places it. It doesn't go there. There's a holy set-apart place where the sanctified ashes go, and they, that's the only place you put them. That's what he's saying. The fire on the altar shall be kept, shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions and the peace offerings on it. The fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Then he gives some more details on the grain offering and so on. So what can we learn from this? What can we glean from this? What truths are there that are possibly relevant for us in a civilized society 3,000 years removed from this barbarous living and people camping out, cutting up animals, dumping blood? I mean, what can we possibly benefit from this? People who run, drive up to a window and ask for a hamburger that is prepared for us, that comes in a bag. We never see the blood. We never deal with the life of the animal draining out. We never see the cost of what we're eating. We don't, we, that we're so far removed from that. What do we have to learn from these things? Well, several things. First of all, the review for you. The worshiper brings the animal to the temple. By the way, anytime they were eating meat, they were to bring that meat before the Lord, and they were to sacrifice it at the temple any time. No point. And if you did, if you said, you know what, tonight I think we're going to have um, we're going to have some lamb tonight. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. What do you guys want? You want lamb? Okay. And, and you go and you 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 kill your lamb, but you don't take it and shed its blood before the altar where they can dump the blood out. Then blood guilt is on you. The guilt of that animal, the guilt of your action doing it outside of how God commanded to do that, because the blood of the animal was precious to God. It was a big deal. You'll see in a minute. So the worshiper brings the animal to the tent, the tabernacle, entrance of the tabernacle. The worshiper lays hands on and leans onto the animal, and he does three things. And I have them up here because I want you to understand. I want you to remember these three words, confession, identification, and then substitution. He's going to lean onto the animal, and he's going to confess his sins. God, you have gracious and loving, and I am sinful and wicked, and I, like Isaiah, am I have unclean lips and I am unholy. My family has sinned and I have sinned and I need your grace and your mercy. And so I ask you to forgive me. So he confesses his sin onto the animal. And by doing this, he's identifying with it. You don't just casually bring it up and like, yeah, there's, there's my dinner. Can you kill it for me? I'll just wait over here. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. It's not like going to the butcher shop here. You go, you kill your animal, but before you kill your animal, you confess your sins. You lean in to the animal and you're confessing your sins. And there's a process known as transference, symbolically, happening. Your sins are being dumped onto the animal that's going to die in your place. And it's a pure, spotless, unblemished animal. And so picture of righteousness and its righteousness, its goodness, its purity, its, its cleanliness is being transferred onto you who are unclean. And so the worshiper, there's transference going on, and then it's going to be taken, and you're going to kill it, and it's going to die in your place. And so there's a substitutionary element of it. So three things, confession, identification, substitution. And then you have transference, your sin to the animal, and then imputation, its righteousness into your account. And that's what's happening. So a lot's happening in that moment. And that happens throughout the sacrificial systems. The worshiper sacrifices the animal, the, the worshiper is to kill the animal himself, and then the worshiper skins the animal as the raw flesh of the animal is exposed. No doubt this was a powerful reminder of God covering the shame and the nakedness of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. We know the first sacrifice in the Bible, the first physical death in the Bible, they never knew death until they sinned and they tried to cover themselves by constructing their own coverings out of leaves, which is a great picture of the way that we try to construct our own goodness. We try to do things that are going to make God happy. We try to do things that we think will make God like us or that, that if we put these things around us, then we feel good about ourselves. We look to functional saviors to provide a covering so we don't feel bad about ourselves. And God said, those things don't work. You're naked. You are shameful. You are sinful. And so God says, I've got a way. And he provides for them animal skins to cover their nakedness. And undoubtedly, get the image for me, with me, 
the Garden of Eden. An animal has been killed. Its blood has been shed. Fiery swords going, picturing the wrath of God towards sin. Undoubtedly consuming the animals that have been killed on their behalf. And then they go expelled from the garden, but clothed in the grace of God with animal skins provided by the animals that are now dead. They're covered. And so they were to fillet the... uh, um, Play the animal and the skins were to be taken off. And then fifth, the last, uh, the worshiper cuts up the portions of the animal for the priest to burn the head, the fat, the legs, the entrails. And all that was placed on the altar and was burned. And so the worshiper is involved in all of these aspects. And by the way, the whole animal is burnt. Some of the offerings that you're going to see in the next several weeks, not the whole thing's not burnt. Sometimes part of the offerings eaten by the priest, part of the offerings eaten after it's cooked by the um, worshippers. Some of it, it's it's shared. Some of it goes to the priests. This is a way that the Levites were able to take care of themselves because they weren't busy out in the fields working to provide for themselves. They were busy ministering on behalf of the people. And so the way that God provided for the ministers of the tabernacle, the Levites, was through the offerings that came to them from the other tribes as they brought these things to the temple. So that's how God provided for the leaders of the temple. Now, what's the reason? That was the rites the rituals, what's the reason behind these things? Well, several things. First of all, why was it a blood sacrifice? Is this a new thing? No. Pagan societies has had, have long since had a, pay, a blood sacrifice. In fact, I saw an image of India recently, just this last week, where there was a flood um, or heavy rains. There were heavy rains in the midst of a sacrifice that they were doing, and the streets flowed with blood. Even to this day, people still sacrifice. But what's the difference? Well, blood sacrifices were common among different religions, even today. Practices in, uh, practiced in parts of the world. Yet there's clear distinctions on how God prescribes for them to do it, and how the people of God did it, and how the pagans and others that worship false gods around them, dead gods, totem poles, things that they've created and, and fashioned, and how they worship their gods. Pagan religions would use sacrifices, and they would combine them with immoral, often sexual acts for uh, fertility rights and other things. It was a way for them to be able to somehow earn favor with their God so that they can have lots of kids. Others would use the sacrifices as a way to contact the dead. It was a way that they would use to contact the dead so they could pray to them or pray to their ancestors through sacrificing and killing something. They would cast spells on it. They would take the guts out. This happens. Saul actually tries this with the witch of Endor. They take the guts out and they would study the guts. They look at the liver and they look at the spleen and they look at it and be like, all right, so what's going to happen? We're going to battle here. Are we going to win or are we going to lose? And then the witch doctor, whatever, would, would look at it and they, hmm, hmm. I think you're going to win. I think it's going to be a good day. All right, awesome. And then they go to battle. And so that's not what's happening here. All that stuff is burned on the altar. It's not a way to try to contact or understand or or manipulate the gods, appease them because they feared the gods harming them or their food source or their children, their family. As you'll see, God is giving them a sacrificial system that that, um, that is distinct and different from the pagan rituals, Even, even to the point where some of them would even kill their own children. They would do human sacrifices and they would sacrifice their own children to appease the gods. They're so fearful of the demons and the false gods that tormented them, they would literally kill other humans, even their own children, to appease the gods. That is not what God is prescribing for them, which is one of the reasons why it's so specific. And it's so precise and so clear what the intentions of these things are. So it's not pagan rituals. It's an offering for the word korban, which is a Hebrew word. And it means simply to draw near. When you bring an offering to the Lord, you're bringing something. You're coming to the presence of God. It's a way that you draw near to God. So that's one of the aspects of the offering they bring is a way that they would draw near to a holy God as unholy people. That they could be clean because they're unclean. It was an atonement. Atonement means, again, a covering for their sins. So it was an atonement. This is the way that they covered their sins. God looks at them, looks at the law, sees their sin, and the only way to get rid of it, you can't erase it, you have to cover it. You would cover it with the blood. Why blood? Well, because Leviticus 17, 11, we talked about this last week, the life of the creature is in its blood. The blood was precious and sacred to God because it symbolized life. They had to feed the fire. The fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. 
And then it's to be a burnt offering, olah, which means to ascend. It was to go up to God in smoke. This offering is going to go up and like the uh, rising to God. And God would smell the, the flesh being burnt and it would satisfy his wrath that burns towards sin. And God would withhold his wrath from his sinful people and from sinful humanity. So that's the reason. So what about the burnt offering specifically? Well, the couple of things that this is just incredible as you look at these things. I, I love to think about the symbolism and how beautiful this is. How God has provided a covering for us. First of all, the Lord selected an offering that pleased him from the herd of the flock, oxen, sheep, goats, or pigeon or dove. Why? Because they're easily acquired by man. He could have said, okay, I, here's what I want you to do. There's these islands on a land far, far away, on an ocean, which you're going to think if you go too far, you're going to drop off because you think the earth is flat at this point, but it's really not. It's actually around. But somewhere over there, there's these islands. They're called the Galapagos Islands. And there is a, um, there's a specific reptile or turtle, giant turtle on that altar. I mean, on that island, you need to go find that turtle. Or there's a certain kind of finch that lives on that. And you, you need to go. Or there's a mountaintop where this one eagle lies on that one place. And to, to have relationship with me, you're going to have to go on a quest to climb the tallest mountain, to come out on a cliff, to get this one eagle or an egg from that eagle or a feather from that eagle or do whatever. And you're going to have, God wasn't trying to make it difficult for them to have a relationship with him. Sometimes we feel like I just, where's God? I pray and he doesn't speak. I just feel like he's so distant. I feel like God has wants to have a relationship with you. He could not have made it more easy in how he's pursued us. And likewise, he gives them a system for blood to be shed on on their behalf to cover their sins. And he makes it really easy. Take an animal from the flocks that all of you have. And bring it to me easily acquired. They didn't have to pursue some offering to gain their salvation. God brought the salvation to them in their backyard. It's behind their tent in the fence right there. Go get it. Number two, the oxen, people, peaceful creature taken from the riverside, sheep from the quiet pasture. Makes us think that the Redeemer left the joys and the blessedness of his Father's presence. Jesus was willing to leave that and to come to earth as an infant, leaving the presence of his Father by the streams that make glad the city of God, that eternal heavenly temple. He leaves that. And he comes to us to be our sacrifice. And in the same way, an oxen and a sheep and a goat and a bull, domesticated, willing to follow the master to the sacrifice, like a sheep to the slaughter, submitted, domesticated, humble, trusting, led to sacrifice. Number three. They're a horned animal. They had horns, which usually in the Bible, there's lots of different imageries in some of the apocalyptic end times literature and things that are kind of helping us understand how God's going to work in the end times and, and even past times. And a lot of times the horns are used to describe power and honor. Whenever you see horns, and this was a multi-horned animal or, or creature and they saw this vision and it had seven horns and whatever. It, did it literally have seven horns? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But the point is, the horns are symbolizing power and authority and honor. And so uh, that, that is one of the things. Most of the animals that were given were had horns and they were for power and honor. They're also to be without blemish. Without blemish. And if I could add one thing, because not all the animals. You're saying, well, pigeons and doves, they don't have horns. Well, the point of the pigeons and the doves is, again, goes back to the first point. The offerings were easily acquired. To have a bull and to have an oxen and to have a goat, have, those are not inexpensive items. There is great cost to give up your bull as an offering. Imagine God saying, I'd like to have one of your cars. If you could just come and drive it off the cliff as an offering to me. You say, well, when would I only have two. I only have two cars. Or I only have three cars. Or I only have one car. I only... That's what I'd like to, that's what you need to do i mean what would you do they're giving one something that's incredibly expensive that they don't have a lot of that's a really sacred special thing for them and they're supposed to give it as an offering because sin is 
costly. But what if you don't have enough money to own your own car? Then what do you do? Well, I guess you are never going to have your sins forgiven. But God says, no, I want everybody to be able to have a relationship with me. So if you don't have the money to own something like that, you can just take a little turtle dove. Just take a little pigeon and bring it, that little tiny delicate bird, and bring it. And it can die on your behalf because everybody can have forgiveness for their sins if they will come repentantly and humbly before me. Some of the other images, the reality. Verse 9, you were to place it all. Everything was offered to the Lord. Everything was offered to the Lord. Now, as we get into the reality of this, this is what, let me give you a, a verse to give you some background. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says this. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, hence the word reality, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, daily, make perfect those who draw near. The problem with these sacrifices is they could appease God's wrath. They could withhold God's wrath. They could provide forgiveness for sins temporarily, but they would never change the biggest problem with every human who wants to approach a holy God, and that is their sinful, wicked heart. Your problem, teenager, your problem, child, your problem, mom, your problem, dad, your problem, adult, your problem, grandma, grandpa, your problem is your wicked heart. And sacrifices would never change that. They'll never fix that. And so Hebrews 10 verse 1 acknowledges that reality. They can't make perfect those who draw near to God. They give us a pattern for how to be a clean people, but they'll never make us a clean people because they can't change the heart. Only God can do that. And so... But in this picture, the reality pictured by the shadows, if we understand the shadows more vividly, it'll help us have a better appreciation for the reality that these pictures, this pictures a a truth and a reality that we want to understand. And so this is the application for you. This is, okay, 2,500 years later, 3,500 years later, how does this apply to me? Here's how it applies to you. Think about the application for you. First of all, all in the altar. Everything was offered to the Lord. The animal was an involuntary sacrifice. Jesus was a voluntary sacrifice. He laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. The shepherd willingly lays it down for the sheep. God calls us to lay down our lives as living sacrifices. The meaning, you are to take your whole life and you're to put it on the altar that has been quenched and say, okay, God, you put out the fire. And you want all of the badness of me, and I get all the goodness of you, and yet my life needs to be fully, completely surrendered to you. All to you. I don't know, when you decided to become a Christian, when you walked down an aisle, when you prayed a prayer, when you followed Jesus, whatever phrase you want to use when you were born again, if you fully surrendered, if you just said, you know, that's cool, I like that, I like heaven, I like heaven, I don't like hell, not liking that. Yeah, I'm in. Check. I'm in. What I got to do? Sign up where, pray what, do what, jump through what, what, what do I need to do? And, and God's saying, no, repentance and faith. You need to repent and believe in me. You need to put it all in there. It's all got to go in there. Your whole life needs to be surrendered all on the altar. Verse 9. Secondly, pleasing aroma. The phrase is it was a sweet savor. I don't want to make light of this, but evidently God liked barbecue also, right? Okay. God likes barbecue. You know, you know what it's like. You you go by a barbecue place, or you go by some restaurant where you can smell the fire going, and you're just like, mm, I'm hungry. Are you hungry? I'm hungry. You just ate. I I don't I know that, but I'm still hungry because that smells really good. I'm hungry. Hopefully, when you drive up tonight, you're gonna flesh burning. Mm, that smells good. I'm hungry. That's that's really good. Let's eat, right? It's a pleasing aroma to God. Everything was offered. Of the Lord, but for God, it wasn't that He was hungry because He needed something to eat. God is not hungry. You can't add anything. He doesn't need anything. He's completely self-sufficient. But it was pleasing because it was appeasing His wrath towards sin. So three times, I'm sorry, eight times, three times in this chapter, verses nine, thirteen, and seventeen. Eight times in the chapters one through three, it, it, is, it is said that it was a fragrant aroma, sweet savor, 
to God. And so a couple quick thoughts on this. Christ's sacrifice was a fragrant offering to God. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of God to crush him who was put to grief. Isaiah 53 is one of the most vivid sacrifices of of this one future person who's going to come, who's going to be the suffering servant, who will be pierced for our transgressions, smitten for our iniquities. We will be forgiven through his suffering on the cross. And then it says the most amazing, scary, uh, odd verse in the whole Bible, one of the most, verse 10, it says that it pleased God to crush him. Please, God. To crush him, crush him, crush his son. God got excited. God was celebrating killing his son. What kind of crazy God would do that? It's not because he didn't love his son. It's not because he didn't cherish his son. It's not because it wasn't his only begotten son. It pleased him because he had been forgiving sin for generations before and was going to forgive sin for generations to come based upon a shadow of which could never purify the sinner and never satisfy the wrath of God. And when he looked prophetically to the future, knowing that Jesus would one day die on the cross, the thought of it pleased God to crush Jesus because it would vindicate God's righteousness. No longer could the devil come to God and say, oh, you forgive him, but for what? You can't, a goat can't pay for their sins. You know the law. You know, you're a holy God. You can't forgive. You can just look past their sin. Then that violates you. You're not a good God. You're not a holy God. You can't forgive sin just because you want to be nice. Somebody's got to pay for the price. And God says, I'm, I'm paying for the price. I'm paying for I'm not just forgiving sins based on animals being killed for that they're going to eat for dinner or they're going to burn up and throw the ashes out in a clean spot. I, that is more than that. I got this is a picture. I'm just getting started. I'm just warming up. This is just a picture of what's going to happen. But then he sent Jesus to come and to die in our place. And it pleased God to crush him because it was the fulfillment of all the prophecies. And in that moment, God had forgiven sins from that point forward all the way back Adam and Eve, and all the way forward to you and I and those who will come after us. All a pleasing aroma. Christ was pleased, or Father was pleased to crush Him. Our lives have been cleansed by the blood. There's two elements of that. Please God because God was pleased in His Son. The second thing is, is it pleases God when you lay down your life as a sacrifice. You say, well, I'm, I'm not really perfect. I mean, why would God be happy with me? Where do you think? It's not because you're so good. It's not because he's so impressed with you or me. It's he does appreciate our full surrender and our humility and our laying our lives down. I think God is 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 that faith to lay your life down. I think and I know biblically God is pleased with that. But he's most pleased because he has qualified. He has accepted your life surrendered because it's in Jesus and his blood covers your sin and he qualifies you pleasing aroma christ's sacrifice was fragrant offering to god our lives having been cleansed by jesus should be also a fragrant aroma to god and so the world may not understand or accept you they may think you're weird and crazy and odd but i want you to know that that the key to having an acceptable sacrifice for god is to have a offered sacrifice you can't god can't accept what hasn't been offered and i understand that you and i often we hold back parts of our lives we say god you can have this part but you can have this part you can have this piece but you can't have that piece you can have this and it's all got to be on all offered he qualifies it's pleasing to god and so number three it's all or nothing it's not the quality of your sacrifice but the quantity jesus qualifies it and so the fact that you put it all on there Colossians 1 tells us that he has qualified us. So don't ever think that your life can't please God. Your life can please God. Why? Because it's in Christ. And then two other realities that are just beautiful for us to know. How do we worship God? How do we, as God's people, the family of God, well, they started and ended every single day with burnt offerings. The priest, now the worshipers, the nation, did not every day bring their sacrifices, but regularly they would bring burnt offerings to God on behalf for different reasons, different times. But every day, as the sun began to rise and people stepped out of their tents every morning to look towards the center of the camp where the presence of God resided, they would see smoke rising from the altar 
And they would know that sacrifices have been made on behalf of their sin. And as they went out that night, before they went to sleep, they could look and by the moonlight or by the illumination of the fire over the Holy of Holies as God's presence rested, they could see smoke rising as the burnt offering was offered at the close of every evening. As you wake woke up this morning and as you wake up tomorrow, you can wake up knowing there has been a sacrifice that has qualified you, that God has provided forgiveness for your sins for the day. Everything you're going to do, you're not going to do, whatever God's already provided for you. And as you lay your head on your pillow at night and you go to sleep, God has provided for the day before and the day to come. And you are safe and you are purified and you are sanctified. And so if that's true, shouldn't our lives be different? The last thought is that this was the foundation for all other sacrifices offered and rendered through the day. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel, the day of atonement, the most holy day of the year, Passover, commemorating God, delivering them from Egypt. doesn't matter what the sacrifices were, it doesn't matter what the feast was, it doesn't matter what the thing is that they're bringing before God. Every day began and ended, every day was sanctified, every day was set apart, first and foremost, by the foundational sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 1 of the burnt offering. So a couple minutes, we're going to... We're going to end the service, and you're going to have an opportunity as we worship and contemplate and think about the things that God has said to us this morning. You're going to have an opportunity for you to give. And I want you to say, understand, across life, people give. Some people give online. Some people give once a month. Some people give once a quarter. Give, give whatever. Some people don't give. You, whatever you do, you, whatever you give, you don't give. It's before the Lord. Before the Lord. And it doesn't impress God. It doesn't go, God doesn't go, you know, that was a big challenge. I'm really impressed. I'm so impressed. But you know, we don't give to impress God. God doesn't go... I was three uh, percent. I, I, I really, uh, I'm looking for more than that. And if you give ten percent, God doesn't go. Wow, he gives ten percent. If you give fifteen percent, oh, he's really. Good. The, the issue isn't the number. The issue is the heart. I mean, you could barely be making it. You could barely pay your bills. You know what your checking account looks like. You know, you might even drain the checking account because it's too loaded. There's no not enough in there to have a checking account. And you're barely making it, and you just and God says, um, t- tomorrow I want you to take that quarter that's on your dresser, and I want you to bring that, and I want you to give that as an offering to me. And you are giving more than you have to give. Somebody could be a multimillionaire, and the 10% is a no big deal. They could live on 1% of their income, and they could give the other 99%, and it wouldn't be a sacrifice. And God's not impressed by their 10%. Jesus didn't give a percentage. Jesus gave it all. But here's the point. In your giving, do you surrender your finances to God? Do you surrender your provisions to God? Do you surrender? And do you give out of an overflow that Jesus has qualified what you give? And so you give in obedience, not to try to keep the law, but even abundantly, hopefully God willing, more than 10% because God has abundantly given everything to us. And so we give as the Lord has led us because he has qualified it. As we go to Pinecrest in a little bit and we go serve, God is not going, oh, you gave them a food box. I am so, you're so sweet that you gave them a food box. You put off your lunch for 30 minutes and you gave them a food box and you asked them, hey, you can pray for them. And I'm so impressed. You're such a wonderful people. You're so godly. Drive past all these other churches where people are trying to get to the buffets quicker. But you guys aren't like that. You're so much more. No, we go because Jesus provided a sacrifice. Now we have an opportunity to give something to somebody in hopes that we can talk to them about, do you know the love of God? a free gift and god has given a free gift where are you at in your spiritual journey do you know jesus how can i pray for you how can i be an encouragement to you, do you have, i'm just impressed that i heard this morning in our sermon that god has provided his blood he's provided a sacrifice if you ever experienced god's forgiveness in your life how can i pray for you god has qualified that you do that in overflow of what he's done whatever you do this that's why this week Your life is a living sacrifice. Let me close with one verse and then we're done. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. How can your life be holy and acceptable to God? Through the blood of Christ. He's qualified you. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or some translations say your reasonable act of worship it's not like god's asking for anything excessive it's just normal it's just reasonable everything 
living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings I have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in my in the scroll of the book. And when he said from above, he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. But God is satisfied in Christ who came and He laid down His life for us. And now, no longer do the priests have to start and end the day and throughout the whole day, killing animal after animal after animal, shedding blood to appease the wrath of God. God has extinguished His wrath towards those who have put their trust in you, and the priests can now sit down because the job is done. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you have provided your full life. God, we confess, I confess, God, that we have taken so lightly your sacrifice that is so great and marvelous and amazing. God, we have taken what you have done for us that is just unbelievable, beyond comprehension, and we just act like it's just token. It's just ritualist. It's just not that big of a deal. And yet you have qualified. God, we awaken every morning with the reality that you have made a way for us to know you and to proclaim you. And Father, I pray that you would capture and recapture our passion and our love for you, knowing that you first loved us, pursued us, made convenient as possible a way of salvation that we would just repent and give our pathetic nothing fully to you and get your abundantly gracious, magnificent everything through Christ. The riches of your grace and mercy are beyond our comprehension. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Thank you.